Welcome to Ono, Ross, and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal, but we take part ourselves. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I know you're wondering, where's Carrie right now? Well, don't worry. You're going to hear a lot of Carrie in this episode. Uh, this will be a talk that she delivered to Skeptics in the Pub Online, a group based in the UK. And the talk was called Trauma, Pseudoscience, and Social Media. This was given February 23rd, 2023, and the host that you'll be hearing shortly, who uh, introduces and then asks questions later, is Michael Marshall, a.k.a. Marsh, uh, who you might remember from a prior interview that was in our episode, Carrie and Marsh Talk About Tactics, Reporting on Anti-Vaxxers Edition. Uh, this talk was live on Twitch, and it is now available on YouTube, so if you want to see Carrie give this talk. You can go to youtube.com slash at the at symbol S I T P online. That's for skeptics in the pub online. The visuals are helpful, but you can understand the talk just fine listening to it here on the podcast. However, I will also say that we have copied a PDF of Carrie's slides along with some sources that she mentions in the QA. That's available at tinyurl.com slash Carry Trauma Talk. That was the shortest we could abbreviate that. So tinyurl.com slash talk, one word. And then you can see the visuals that way as well. I really enjoyed listening to this. This was super helpful for me because Carrie talks a lot about uh, what she's been researching for her book. And I get dribs and drabs of this, but it was just such a great presentation all in one place of a lot of the information that she's been researching over the past years. And I'm excited for you all to hear it, which means I should stop talking. Just be aware, I think this was recorded on Skype. Uh, so it's going to sound like it was recorded on Skype. And just a heads up that I'll be jumping in partway through. I know that's always like a little, whoa, where did this guy come from? So giving you an advance warning. All right, well, that's enough of me talking. Take it away, Marsh. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Skeptics in the Pub Online, your fortnightly slice of skepticism brought to you in the comfort of your own home. You don't even have to go to the pub uh, now that you're allowed to go to the pub, uh, as many of us uh, still are. Um, I'm going to be your host for this evening. I'm Michael Marshall. I'm the editor of The Skeptic and a full-time skeptical investigator, and I'm one of the team here from Skeptics in the Pub Online. So tonight's speaker is one of my favourite investigators out there. She's got a fantastic, she's one half of it, an absolutely fantastic podcast, a real favourite of mine, Ono, Ross and Carrie. Uh, she's the Carrie bit of Ono, Ross and Carrie, where they in investigate all manner of different pseudosciences and go and actually investigate things in person and get quite hands-on in order to figure out is this thing legit? And what are people saying about it? It's a fantastic show. If you don't listen, you absolutely should. It's superb, uh, skeptical, critical thinking uh, and investigative work uh, with a real eye for compassion and humanity. All the stuff we love here at Skeptics in the Pub Online. Uh, she's also currently editing a book on fringe science. Uh, so you can check that out uh, in a little while when that's going to be available. Um, but other than that, I'm going to hand you over to our speaker for this evening. Please uh, go wild in the chat for Carrie Poppy. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I can't see the chat, but I'm going to assume you're going wild. Hi, Marsh. So good to see you. I want to say I, I love this group. I'm so glad to be here. Marsh chased me down for probably two and a half years to do, to do this talk. Um, he kept texting me. And, you know, you have these 10 or 15 people who you're like, I really am going to do this. It's just going to 
I'm, I'm going to say yes to this person. The yes just might be delayed. Um, and this was delayed because I have been working on a book about trauma. And that book has been the most intense thing I've ever worked on in, in my life. And it is now the subject I know the most about of anything I've ever studied. And it is incredibly deep and complex information um, if you actually want to get to the center of trauma science. But today I'm going to tell you about the fringe, the fluff, the social media aspects of trauma psychology as we see it today. And popular trauma psychology is, is quite different from trauma science as it stands in, in psychology today. And we'll kind of look at why that is, but I'll be working backwards, if you will. We'll be looking at the social media understanding of trauma and the way it's talked about today, and then working backwards toward the science. So where are people getting these ideas? What What's right about them? What's not right about them? And especially where are people being misled? And where might that misleading have come from? So I'm going to first convince you that you should listen to me about it, <laughs> which is always an important part of the job, but always an awkward part of the job. And especially as a journalist, because I'm not a PhD, I, I even I find it uncomfortable when people call me a trauma expert, even though I acknowledge that I, I have deeper knowledge than most people on this subject. But the, the reason you should listen to me is that I have been writing this book and I have gone into over a thousand original documents. I've read hundreds of scientific studies. I've gone to dozens of trauma-informed events by big, important trauma speakers. I went undercover in trauma therapy to three different trauma therapists for about uh, 14 months, I believe it was. And I've been doing this original research that goes all the way back to the 1880s. Obviously, that won't be here today because there wasn't social media. But I want to define my terms because one of the things that I'll be, frankly, accusing the trauma-informed movement of doing is not defining trauma very well. So I want to define pseudoscience well so you can't lob the same accusation at me. So I actually really like this definition from the American Psychological Association. They call pseudoscience a system of theories and methods that has some resemblance to a genuine science, but that cannot be considered such. Examples include astrology, numerology, esoteric magic. Various criteria for distinguishing pseudosciences from true sciences have been proposed, one of the most influential being that of falsifiability. I'm going to assume this crowd knows what falsifiability is, but just in case, it means basically the ability to be falsified, the ability to be proven wrong. So if you express your idea in such a way that no one can prove you wrong, you actually haven't said anything. Um, okay, so before we get to the actual social media, we need we need a little bit of, of scene setting here about the definition of trauma and how it has changed over time. So we're starting here in 1941, and anybody who knows trauma deeply is already going like, what, Carrie, 1941, that's late. You're right, that is late. But for this particular uh, version of trauma that we're dealing with on social media, this is actually a pretty good place to start. So in 1941, a psychiatrist named Abram Cardiner defined the traumatic neuroses of war. He was basically looking at what we would now call PTSD or military PTSD. It was all veterans. And he saw that uh, veterans were coming back to their homes with 
these these symptoms that people didn't quite understand. And even the veterans didn't understand. They didn't understand why they were behaving the way they were behaving, why they were responding so strongly, especially to audio stimuli. So noises would set them off really easily, or they'd find themselves not able to connect with their families in ways that they used to. And they thought, I'm home from war. I should be, I should be thrilled, but instead I just feel sort of sunken into myself and unable to connect to the world around me. So Cardner saw this. He thought that these these veterans should be cared for and they should be reimbursed by the state. And so he decided to study that deeply and he called that the traumatic neuroses of war. So correctly, people heard about this and said, well, wait, that probably applies to more than just the military, right? Maybe trauma should be anything that causes harm to the psyche, anything that makes you have these reactions that you don't understand, that changes your relationship to yourself. Those things that veterans were experiencing, maybe that happens all over the map of human experience. So in 1967, we get this definition, anything that causes harm to the psyche. Okay, we've really broadened it already. We're we're only in 1967 here. And as we'll see, we've only just begun. So 1980, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, here in the in the US is sort of the bible of psychology it's what therapists go to to diagnose their clients or should anyway and in 1980 PTSD entered the DSM and they defined trauma as a psychologically distressing event that is outside the range of usual human experience now some people are probably already looking at that definition and saying outside the range of normal human experience well hang on, (laughs) that won't work because we all could experience trauma. So what if Earth gets hit by a meteor and we all start starving to death? Now, is that not trauma? Because it's no longer outside the range of human experience. (sighs) Okay, so people saw that problem and broadened it again. Okay, so 1987, it becomes overwhelming life experiences. This definition comes from Bessel van der Kolk. He is a theorist who will come up a lot in this talk. And if you look into trauma science at all, you will see his name a lot. So overwhelming life experiences. Ooh, okay. Now we're getting really broad, right? I can think of, I don't know, maybe 200 of those that I've had in my life. Okay, what do we mean by that? Okay, but it kept going. So 1994, we have the DSM got updated. And the DSM tried to keep things a little scientific, right? So they said, okay, let's get a little more specific than overwhelming life experience, but we're still kind of broadening. So an event involving actual or threatened death or serious injury and a response that involves intense fear, helplessness, or horror. Okay, this one pissed people off as well. So people started responding, well, hang on. What if, what if someone that I love is threatened with death? And like, what if someone gets murdered in front of me? Is that not a trauma? Okay, good. Let's add that. So 2013, DSM updates to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence, which was an important addition. And they add some constraints we won't get into here, just not to get too in the weeds. But you'll see that I put this little, what's what's this called? Exclamation point on it. Because I want you to remember this definition. Because this continues to be the most scientific working definition that we've got. 
So as we see the definition expand from here, we'll be talking mostly about the popular understanding of trauma and not necessarily the way that scientists are still using it today. So in 2014, Bessel van der Kolk, that trauma expert I mentioned before, he wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score, this book, which he has signed for me. I had him sign the front and I had him sign this. And next I'm going to have him sign the back. That's how much I go to his conferences. But this book kind of took over. It, it took over late though. So it was published in 2014 and right around the start of COVID, it became very, very, very popular. It, it is actually, I believe, the longest standing nonfiction book on the New York Times bestseller list in modern history. I believe that's right. I've been in contact with the New York Times. They gave me kind of a namby-pamby answer, but I'm fairly confident. Okay, here's Bessel van der Kolk's definition of trauma. Trauma is not just an event that took place sometime in the past. It is also the imprint left by that experience on the mind, brain, and body. This imprint has ongoing consequences for how the human organism manages to survive the present. <sighs> okay. So first of all, this definition doesn't come until page 21 of the book. Not a great sign. But also, man, how broad is this, right? This is like anything that happens to you that has an effect on your mind, brain, and body. Wow. This is, this is almost an argument that every single thing that happens to us gets stored in this secret place inside of us that then acts on us without our knowledge. It's kind of a spooky concept. And there's a way in which it's true. It's true in that Pavlov and his, his colleagues showed that there's a lot of stuff going on under the surface in our brains, a lot of neural networks that are doing lots of work without us really being in touch with them somewhere around 90 to 95% of our thoughts are subconscious. That's true. But they are not mostly stuff like this. They're not mostly memories. They're not mostly ideas about how to interact with the world around us, so much as it's just stuff about modulating the body, modulating the emotional response. And those things are built by a lot more than our experiences. In fact, the closest number I can give you is somewhere around 50% of your internal emotional experience is genetic. And that's an uncomfortable fact for a lot of people, but it is true. Somewhere around 10% of your emotional experience is built by your life experience. Somewhere around 10%. And somewhere around 40% of your internal experience is your learned ability to think about your own life in a helpful way. And that is a learned skill. And it is a skill that is learned by talking to other people and learning what the science has to say about emotional regulation and about relationships and treating this as a science. And we really got away from that in the last 10 years. So as you can see, in 2021, this definition gets even murkier, we start talking about everyday trauma. This book actually called Everyday Trauma says, everyday trauma describes stressful events that happen suddenly and linger 
as thoughts and memories, as well as traumatic experiences that continue day after day. Boy, I don't even know. I, I see that and I kind of have an idea of what she's getting at, right? But that's not what we want in science. We don't want, <laughs> I kind of have an idea what you're getting at. That is not studyable, right? And, and look at this definition. How does this make you look at your life? Something that I have discovered from my interviews with people who get caught in sort of a trap of trauma treatments is that depression is a big problem. People start to see their lives in terms of, they, they start to see it through a really dark lens. They start to remember their own experiences and say, gosh, I, I didn't think that was that bad. But now that I think about it, it really is. And people cut off relationships with their families because of this. It's very common. And depression seems to get worse and worse. And so this isn't harmless. Here's another definition from 2021. The type of emotional or physical pain that often goes unseen, yet actually changes the brain biology and psychology. As with COVID, you can't see trauma itself. You just see it at work, silently, but maliciously. This is what I'm worried about. I hear a ghost story in this. I once thought that I was being haunted. This is, a, I won't tell the whole story here, but I, I gave a TED talk about it if anyone's interested. I once was a sufferer of carbon monoxide poisoning and I was, it was my, my house basically in a gas leak. And I, I became convinced that I was being haunted. And Fortunately, I got, I got out of that story okay, but I, when I hear a story like this, I immediately feel it. I remember this feeling of being haunted, possessed, followed, and when my interview subjects tell me about their experiences in this trauma trap, I remember that. I, that's what I hear. I hear someone who can't get away from a spooky presence that follows them around. It's it's not a great it's not a great idea. And if it turns out to be true, that's different. But we'll see if that's the case. So how do we get here? There's a lot of factors at play here. Science education is obviously a big one. Sociopolitical factors. The conversation around feminism in the 70s played a really big role. 70s and 80s, especially here in the U.S. So feminists were pointing out rightly that rape victims were experiencing a lot of the same problems that veterans experienced. And uh, this idea of the rape trauma syndrome emerged in the public and needed to. But alongside of that came a lot of frustration with the way that the psychological establishment had treated women and the way women had been ignored on this topic. And that was all accurate, but it also fostered this mistrust that then I believe made people see that where it wasn't. People started to really mistrust all of the science and even all of the good science and to say, well, listen to women, just listen to women. They're telling you about their lives, trust them that it's true. Um, and if they tell you that they were traumatized, they were. That sounds great <laughs> until you think about what the role of the therapist is supposed to be. The role of the therapist is to help you diagnose exactly what your issue is, where your suffering is coming from, 
and what the science says about how you might treat it. Their job is not just to validate you. And in fact, validation can be dangerous, right? Especially for depressed people. Anxious people, a little less so, but also a bit dangerous for them. But depressed people naturally have this propensity to see their lives just a little less positively than they need to. And they can be pushed further and further into that viewpoint. And right around this same time that the feminists were pushing back, there was emerging this movement called positive psychology within psychology that came off really like uh, patronizing to a lot of people. It was just basically like, y'all just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and see things positively, or that's the way it was seen. And so you kind of ended up with these two camps, these people saying, believe the women, this is what we've really experienced. And the people saying, well, hang on, hang on. I'm not sure that we're talking scientifically anymore. And unfortunately, those two camps became more and more disparate. Uh, There's also the changes in social media and publishing. This is a big factor in what's happening in the last 10 years. So it is so much easier to publish a book now. Uh, So many of these trauma experts and trauma, uh, uh, trauma promoters, let's say that, trauma promoters that I follow on, on social media, they have all published books now. So people are passing around these 10 or 20 titles that espouse these sort of anti-scientific views on trauma, and people really think they're dealing with experts. Okay, so I'm going to show you real social media posts. They're all from popular accounts. Uh, These are all people who consider themselves public figures, so I'm not obscuring their names. And I can't control your reaction to how you're going to handle this information. But I do want to put this bug in your ear that I don't need think you need to bother these specific people. I think they're examples of a larger problematic trend in trauma science. There are so many people sharing this kind of misinformation that, well, you're welcome to follow these people and you're welcome to kindly comment of course, uh, on on what they say. I just don't want to give you the impression that I'm singling out like the 10 people who are saying this stuff. No, no, no. We're talking about like hundreds of people. Okay, so here's one claim that I bet you've seen. This is something called the trauma response. So the claim here is that many everyday behaviors are actually symptoms of prior trauma, whether you think you were traumatized or not. So those behaviors might include over-explaining, which, as you can see, I've got, um, impulsivity, pursuing in relationships, withdrawing in relationships, core grooming, fawning, which means um, sort of people-pleasing, defensiveness, inappropriate anger, inappropriate sadness, and lots of other things. So here's where the idea probably came from. There are a number of theorists who uh, probably influenced this view. Of course, there's Pavlov Bowlby, who was the guy who brought us attachment theory, which has some scientific basis. Uh, Judith Herman, a, a researcher out of Harvard. Of course, our buddy Freud. And it seems like this mostly came initially from veterans who wanted to go back to war. So after people had realized that so many veterans were coming back with this sort of bizarre set of symptoms, 
they also noticed that some of those guys were saying, but yeah, I want to go back. That really confused people. And the promoters of PTSD uh, were in kind of a pickle then because they made this argument that PTSD should be reimbursed by the state, that it was this, this thing that soldiers were carrying that the state had thrust upon them. But now you've got people saying, I want to go back to war. What do we do with that? Does that just dismantle our whole theory? And so a hypothesis that was raised was, well, maybe that's like reenacting your trauma. Maybe they want to go back so they can work through what they went through before, which maybe. But this became sort of a gospel feature of the trauma experience. Case studies play an outsized role in trauma science. So in most psychology, we have lots and lots of well-designed studies to look at and answer questions. In trauma, we have a problem because we can't just give people trauma in the lab. So almost everything's going to be retrospective. That is to say you're looking backwards in time. So case studies end up carrying a lot of the load here. A case study is when a, a clinician writes up the experience of a particular patient and says something unusual happened in the therapeutic experience that I think could be instructive for other therapists and psychologists to know about so that if you meet a patient like mine, you have some roadmap to follow. A really alarming, in my opinion, alarming problem with case studies is they entirely trust the judgment of the clinician. I mean, entirely. Clinicians can see these things and do nothing to prove that, that, that even that patient exists, exists. And this has caused all sorts of problems. There's a famous case where a researcher named Elizabeth Loftus chased down a case study that had been completely improperly written up. And it had already impacted a lot of science because people assumed it was true. So, you know, you can have problems with lying on the, on the part of the, of the clinician, but also just misinterpretation, right? Like clinicians are just people. They're just sitting there in front of somebody and trying to figure out what's going on with them. And their own biases and interpretations are working into that. And there's really very little peer review that can happen as a result of this process. And so a lot of this trauma response notion comes out of those case studies. There's also the cult studies field. So this is very interesting to me because, uh, as Marsh mentioned, I do this podcast called Owner Ross and Carrie, and we've gone undercover in a number of small religious groups, and many of them you would probably call a cult. You know, we went undercover in Scientology, Tony Alamo Christian Ministries, which was a, a fairly dangerous cult. And so I became really versed in, in cult studies and cult studies is, uh, it's full of many brilliant people who are trying very hard to do good case studies, but it's again, almost impossible to set up a good psychological study around it because you can't make a cult in the lab, right? You can, again, you're just going to probably be dealing mostly in retrospection. So cult studies itself has a few pseudoscience topics that it's kind of thrust into the mainstream. And those became grabbed up by the trauma industry. So they talk a lot about uh, gaslighting, trauma bonding, these concepts that are more art than science, you might say. 
they're an interesting way to view your life, but we don't have like a scientific reason to say they exist and that they have predictable outcomes. And then there are a few proper studies on this topic, but they've all been highly criticized for poor methodology. And, and finally, there's something called the ACEs study. And this, we could do an entire talk about the ACEs study, but I'll try to tell you quickly what it is, how it can be used well, and how it is often used poorly here. The ACEs study is a huge study conducted by Kaiser Permanente, where they examined the different life experiences that can impact your health outcomes down the line. So if you are a child who doesn't have consistent access to food, that will impact your health outcomes dramatically down the line. Um, if you don't have any sort of caregiver who uh, has a tight emotional connection with you, that can have health outcomes down the line. But as we know, this is correlation. We don't know if this is causation. It might be, it might be. But, uh, but we don't know that. And even the designers of the ACE study said, clinicians, don't use this. Don't use this. Because this is a population study. This is so we can figure out which populations need more funding, need more access to care, need more nutrition information, more access to nutrition. Parents who need support so that they're able to be good caregivers. We were trying to find those people and give them more resources, but clinicians didn't really listen to this. And they started using the ACEs study to talk to their, their clients and say, well, you have this many ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, that explains what you're experiencing today. This is a misuse of the science. And here, here are the problems with just, just this one idea, the trauma response. Once anything can be trauma, which we've discovered earlier in our trauma definitions, then anything can be a trauma response, right? <laughs> and, and your current mood dramatically alters how you see your past experiences, even can rewrite your memories. Now, this is a controversial topic. I'm not going to get too, too caught up in that false memory aspect of it. But I just have to say, false memory is a normative human experience. It is not unusual. Most of your memories are a little bit false. Even what happened yesterday, if you think about answering the door for the pizza guy, it's somewhere around 94% accurate. So your brain is already making just little tiny switches saying, I didn't need that piece of information. I'm going to add this to make this make more sense. Our brains are just not perfect at this. So if you sit someone in your therapy office who's, God, already depressed, and you start to look at their behaviors through this lens, um, and they're, uh, they're already feeling sad, false memories or distorted memories and distorted interpretations of their past are, are a very common outcome. And as I said, people begin to feel haunted by their own behaviors. Why do I do this? Oh, it's a trauma response. Mom did this to me. And, and uh, here's my cat. Um, and, uh, this is especially problematic in families. The most common thing I hear is that people go into trauma therapy and 
A, become more depressed and B, cut off loved ones and regret it. And usually that loved one really did do something kind of screwy or maybe even horrible, but they may have been in a place of forgiveness and acceptance before they entered the therapy. And then when they started seeing their life through this lens, that forgiveness was taken from them. And forgiveness is for the forgiver. So that's, in my mind, sort of a theft. Okay, so trauma symptoms. So the claim here, we're talking about physical symptoms now. The claim is that many everyday physical symptoms are actually symptoms of prior trauma. So some of the common ones are headaches, chronic pain, postpartum psychosis, ovarian cysts, autoimmune disease, inattention, numbing, detachment, and at least 519 more. So I have been keeping this spreadsheet and every time that I hear a trauma symptom named and someone saying, oh, you know, that can be a trauma symptom, I add it to my spreadsheet. So far, that has something like 527 items on it. We have reduced trauma to anything that happens to you that might have been vaguely bad or possibly interpreted as bad. And then we have taken physical symptoms and added it to that. And your physical symptoms can be, I mean, there are, you know, hundreds of or probably thousands of things a human body can experience. This has become so widened that nearly anybody can find something on this list and say, oh, that's a trauma response. Oh, my God. OK, let me think about my past. OK, maybe that explains it. And indeed, that happens all the time. Um, so where did this one come from? I totally think this is sincere. I think people believe this. And it, it appears to be because there is an established correlation between body pain and psychological suffering and between long-term psychological stress and chronic pain. And this is a problem that comes up over and over again in the trauma literature. And the trauma-informed community seems to not want to deal with it at all. And that is that all the evidence that they've got that trauma lives in your body is about stress. So um, stress, long-term stress, does have an effect on the way your body performs. There's a part of the stress response system called the HPA axis. And uh, the trauma-informed community loves to bring up the HPA axis because those people I mentioned before who grew up with lots of ACEs, lots of adverse childhood experiences, their HPA axis is often kind of out of whack. Okay, so if the body's stress response can be impacted by chronic stress, then we would think that if you had chronic trauma, if you kept going through some sort of truly awful experience over and over, that we would also see that in your HPA axis. True, that's true. However, your HPA axis can get damaged by all sorts of things. You could just be a stressed out kid. You could be an anxious child like I was. And your HPA axis is going to look different from a healthy person. And this is not totally recoverable. You could, we pretty much will probably see your HPA axis be a little wonky most of your life. But it is improvable. And the way that the trauma-informed crowd is talking about it is as if it is this, like, sort of fate 
this thing that that trauma has done to you also people who naturally have depression and anxiety already have a dysregulated hpa access and depression and anxiety are mostly genetic around 50 percent so if we were able to look at your hpa axis and determine that it was out of whack which no one even does in this world but let's say we did we still wouldn't know whether you had depression anxiety borderline personality disorder chronic stress that wasn't traumatic or chronic trauma. And chronic trauma is probably one of the less likely options there because depression and anxiety are so common. Okay, I mentioned the ACEs study, retrospective bias. I just want to give a little shout out to that concept here. So retrospective bias is a problem that is identified in large-scale studies where, like the ACEs study, where we're looking at a group of people and we're asking them about their lives in the past. And we, we say, okay, uh, let's say group of people with diabetes. Growing up, did you eat junk food a lot? Okay, so people who are experiencing something currently in their life, they do something called seeking after meaning. And this is a scientifically validated psychological phenomenon we tend to look for a reason we do the things we do. And we don't usually look to things like genetics, to things like a lack of education about how to handle our internal lives. That's so boring. So instead, we look for these events, these little markers in our life that will explain it. And so when you, when you ask someone who is currently suffering with something to look backward in their life and, and tell me, were you ever traumatized? you have a much higher likelihood of them saying yes, even though if we did that study prospectively, we might not have determined that they experienced trauma. And so this has been studied extensively. People with chronic pain, especially if they know they're in a study about chronic pain, which they probably will, and you ask them nearly any question about their prior life that they could cognitively connect to their chronic pain, they will say yes. Or they, excuse me, they're more likely to say yes than the average person because they're trying to explain this awful experience. I get migraines, which is chronic pain syndrome. I get this. I get this. Like when you are incapacitated with pain, you just want to know why so you can do anything the hell about it, right? And this is, in, in my view, it's sort of a cruel thing to do to someone to say, well, maybe it was your past. Like maybe you were mistreated in some way you've never appreciated. Oh man. And again, if that sends you into depression, depression is a, a risk factor for chronic pain. So you may actually be making the situation worse. And of course the problem probably goes untreated as a result, right? And there are countless possibilities for what might actually be going on with you. Uh, a second problem is therapists unintentionally pushing for traumatic interpretations. Therapists have learned not to do this to obviously after the repressed memory and satanic panic period of the 80s and 90s, which I'm going to assume this crowd knows about, but if not, I'll let you go Wikipedia in an hour. After that, therapists were regularly told, listen, you can't go pushing for memories you know, you should let your client sort of lead the conversation and just be a responder. Don't don't be trying to pull memories out of people. 
And for the most part, therapists have stopped doing that. Though not entirely. <laughs> um, but I think what a lot of therapists take for granted is they might be non-verbally communicating their expectations. And if you go to a trauma therapist and you think you're going to get differential diagnosis, that is to say, maybe this person's going to help you figure out if you didn't have trauma, that trauma therapist who went to school just reading Bessel van der Kolk and Judy Herman and these people who promote the trauma mindset is very likely to just lead you down that path with, uh, with no malice, but their, their single-mindedness becomes a blinding factor for both of you. Another problem, it overlooks anxiety and depression. We can't, overlooking anxiety and depression is like the biggest red flag because it, they are the most common reasons people seek therapy. So if that can be ushered into the trauma landscape, we can get almost anybody into trauma therapy where they are likely to get pseudoscientific treatments. There was a study in 2017 that found that, I wish I could remember the exact figure, but it's over 70% of trauma therapists admitting, admitted to using a pseudoscience in the last year. So a treatment that had no validation, 70%, 70%. So ushering in people with anxiety and depression into that world, it is a potentially dangerous move. And then it primes clients to see medical opinions as gaslighting. And this is a term that's come up a lot lately. You've probably seen it. Um, gaslighting originally was intended to convey the idea that someone is trying to make you feel crazy, even though you are sane, by manipulating your environment such that you start to feel like you're losing your marbles. So if my husband's Oh, gosh, I don't know. Let's say he changed the sheets and put on a new comforter I had never seen before. And I said, oh, did you get this comforter? And he said, we've always had that. What are you talking about? That's gaslighting. That's intentional manipulation for the purpose of making the person feel nuts, right? This, it, this term is starting to be used in this very expansive way. And in particular, medical gaslighting has come into the public lexicon, this idea that your doctor is trying to convince you that you're nuts for having chronic pain or for having a psychological symptom that you think is related to trauma, that when they say, no, I think you might just have depression, that they're gaslighting you. Man, <laughs> just another feature of how people get trapped in this world, because once they hear this kind of language, they are afraid of other clinicians. They're afraid of going outside of the trauma community. And then when they do, when they just sort of dip their toe in the rest of psychology, it's a very nerve wracking experience. They experience a lot of cognitive dissonance. I get a lot of emails from people in exactly this um, stage of the process where they're like, something is wrong. Like I've been going to trauma therapy because I thought that was right, but things are falling apart for me. And I don't know, I want to read this source, but someone told me that guy is a gaslighter and an abuser. What do you think? This has become like a really um, paranoia-inducing phenomenon. Okay, and then the trauma mirror. So the claim here is that trauma, and especially repressed trauma, covertly causes us to repeat unwanted behaviors. Um, it's very similar to trauma 
reenactments, uh, but slightly different. Um, so here's where I think this comes from. Prior behavior is nearly always a strong predictor of future behavior. That's true. So if you went to war, you are more likely to go to war than the average guy off the street because you're a person who signs up for the military, right? If you are a person who uh, had a parent who was really, let's say they had a really cruel sense of humor. So your parent would both show you love by joking with you and teasing you and sometimes really cut you down by teasing you. Now that's familiar. And you might find yourself attracted to people who have a really like nasty sense of humor, right? It's not necessarily that you're mirroring and repeating your past trauma, but that something came bundled with the negatives, something positive, something you're used to, something you can relate to. But there is a way to see all of that in the negative to say, oh, you're just uh, you're just mirroring your past trauma. Again, of course, soldiers wanting to go back. And again, we've got the case studies and the cult studies. I think we've, oh yeah, we've covered nearly all of this, except that I want to say nearly any story can be told in that fashion. Try it if you want, like find a way that any behavior you repeatedly do is a trauma response and, and you'll be able to do it. And this is uh, something Freud was particularly good at. And psychoanalysis, which is more or less the brainchild of Freud, is very big on this concept, the trauma mirroring concept. And psychoanalysis still has quite an influence on the trauma-informed community. They don't like to talk about Freud. They seem to be aware that he's not a popular guy to bring up. And when they do, they almost always say something like, now I'm not a big Freud guy, but... But I think a lot of the people in this community don't even know how much he has influenced the thinking of people like Bessel van der Kolk, the author of The Body Keeps the Score, who was in psychoanalysis for over a decade and who early in his career was outspokenly pro-Freud, but has kind of dialed it back, but is repeating all the same concepts. I think this is uh, the final one. Um, so betrayal trauma. Betrayal trauma is the concept of being betrayed by someone on whom you depend. And in the mind of people who promote it, it is the worst kind of trauma you can possibly endure because it can cause feelings of insanity, social isolation, and total amnesia for the abuse. And when I say total amnesia, I mean you go to therapy in your 20s and realize you were abused in your teens, but you repressed the memory. They call it something different. They usually call it dissociated memory, but it's the exact same concept. It is a rebranding. This piece of the community, this kind of corner of the trauma-informed community, bums me out. <laughs> like they, they are, the people in this, in this crowd, and they're almost entirely women, go down this road that's just so tragic where they become increasingly paranoid. And you can watch this happen on their accounts. They're often accusing loved ones of undiagnosed narcissism. That's very common. And they're, they're sharing these like increasingly paranoid warnings about how your narcissistic brother, father, ex-husband is likely to treat you and 
how you should interpret that. And that interpretation is almost always that the person was malicious, that it was intentional. They wanted to abuse you. A lot of this comes from a clinician named Lundy Bancroft, who wrote a book called Why, I think it's called Why Did He Do That? Where he says, every abuser just wants to abuse. That's why abuse happens, because it is easy and it is fun. That is why. I think this is uh, wrong. (laughs) I think this is wrong. Um, I think that all the time we mistreat each other without meaning to. And I think that helping one another to see when we have mistreated others is so crucial and missing here. And it's it's a boldly anti-forgiveness community. They will just say, when you tell me to forgive someone, you are not standing by me. And, and there's some truth to that. We certainly don't want to target someone who has just been mistreated and say, well, your entire focus right now should be on forgiving the perpetrator. That would, of course, be absurd. But when we are in private conversations or mental health conversations with the, uh, the receiver of that behavior, it is great advice to say, well, what we want to work toward with you is getting you to a place where you can forgive even if that's because you realize you have so many more emotional faculties than your abuser did, maybe we can get you to a place of kind of pitying them. That's, that's a really healthy response and it is denied of these women. And so you just, you watch them sort of fall apart. So this concept came from Jennifer Fried, which is a name you may or may not have heard of, but she is incredibly important. Her parents, founded the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. And they did it in the wake of her accusing her father of abuse that she said she had forgotten, repressed, and then recovered in therapy. She was in her 30s when she got the therapy. And what she came to remember was that her father, and this is quite graphic, um, her, her father violently raped her many times from the age of two to 17 and she forgot it completely. She is now a very powerful figure in this movement. She works at Stanford now and she is involved in the Me Too movement and she is, she is seen as an expert. She's mainstream. She came up with the term betrayal trauma and her mind forgetting your abuse is very central to betrayal trauma. And one of her arguments for that is that people who have endured really terrible treatment often see it differently years later. So maybe when they were treated badly as a kid, they didn't make much of it. But then later they say, hey, that was kind of fucked up with my dad. She sees that as a kind of forgetting. I see that as cognitive reappraisal, which is healthy. It's healthy to look back at your life and say, oh, man, I wish my dad hadn't done this. I wish my mom hadn't done X. That's fine. That's good. But usually the purpose is to make the purpose of cognitive reappraisal is to make your life better or to make your society better. So if you got out of your childhood fairly unscathed, great, great. And yes, you can still argue that the next generation shouldn't have to endure some of the slings and arrows you endured because we want every generation to be better and better and to be a better society for one another. But when it is internalized as, no, I had this forgotten memory that is living on in my brain and body, as you can imagine, 
it can be completely devastating, not only to the family, but also to the person seeking therapy. And betrayal trauma, the community also heavily uses this term called DARVO that I want you to be aware of. DARVO stands for Deny, Attack, Reverse Victim Offender. The idea here is that if someone is accused of misbehavior and they defend themselves vociferously, that in itself is evidence that they did the thing they're being accused of. So for example, let's say Marsh accuses me of 10 years ago hitting on him at a conference. And I say, no, I didn't. That's, oh my God, what? First of all, no, no, I, you know, I was in a relationship at the time. I wouldn't have done that. And also I feel a little victimized by this attack. Wow. I, I remember, I remember that event really clearly and maybe I got that vibe from Marsh. I thought he was hitting on me. Uh, and, and you know what? I'm, 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 I'm really offended. If you have that kind of response, that is itself evidence that, no, I really did hit on Marsh 10 years ago in some inappropriate way. Example is made up. Uh, but here's the thing about Darvo. The opposite is true. So the American Association for Psychological Science has studied this. They didn't call it Darvo, which I think was wise, but they studied exactly this. People who are falsely accused are likely to do exactly that, to have an anger response, to have a defensive response, and to point out (laughs) that they feel like the victim of an attack now because they really see it that way. Now, this doesn't mean they didn't do the thing, but it does mean they probably sincerely think they didn't do the thing. So this is just wrong. This is the opposite of the truth. And it is continuously just restated throughout trauma literature. And when you look for the footnote, they just say, well, Dr. Jennifer Fried from Stanford. And I've looked at all of Jennifer Fried's writings on Darbo. At first she admitted it was a hypothesis. And then she just sort of started saying it was fact. She never tested it. Hello, everybody. Okay, this is Ross. I'm trying to come in easy here. I'm interrupting Carrie's talk. Thank you, Carrie. This is eye-opening. Thank you so much. But we're gonna we're gonna have you take a little break, go get some water, because I want to tell everybody about Squarespace. That's right, you've heard us talk about Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. You can stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience, sell anything, your products content you create, your science-based therapy practice. Maybe you want to be able to upload PDFs of the slides from a talk that you gave so that you can make a URL that you share with everybody. Squarespace is there for you. And it's so much more. And I just can't get over it. It's a website that makes websites. And I don't know if you saw the Super Bowl ad uh, with Adam Driver for Squarespace, but he kind of breaks reality because he realizes that Squarespace is a website that makes other websites. And I thought, huh, were other people saying this as well beforehand? I'm sure they were, but uh, it was just kind of a surreal experience. Like, huh, I wonder if we inspired that. Anyways, not only does Squarespace support the Super Bowl, but it also supports podcasters that you love and know like us. And not only can you make your website, but you can create pro-level videos with very little effort. There's the Squarespace Video Studio app for that. That's right. You want an engaging video to tell your story, to grow your audience, to drive sales. You can also add online booking to your website. 
Easy peasy. They've got tools for that. And there's a whole suite of integrated features and useful guides that help maximize your prominence among search engine results. And it's all mobile responsive. You don't have to be a coding genius, but if you are, it's also very extensible. So you can add all kinds of extra features to your Squarespace website. And what I always think is an amazing feature and vote of confidence in their own product is that Squarespace lets you start building your website, play around with the tools, and make sure you like it first. You can test drive it, kick the tires, and then make your purchase. So let me tell you how to do that in a way that supports this podcast. You'll head first to squarespace.com slash ohno, O-H-N-O, for a free trial. And then once you've tried it out, once you're ready to launch, you use the offer code ohno, O-H-N-O, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. It's a website that makes other websites. Okay, now to hear about a couple awesome Maximum Fun shows and then back to Carrie. If you have trouble falling asleep, try sleeping with celebrities. Tell me about your view of, of succulents. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan. It's a different kind of sleep podcast. There are some real benefits to parking illegally. Featuring remarkable guests and unremarkable topics. There's two Orlando airports. From the creator of Depression Mode with John Moe, it's Sleeping with Celebrities. Every week on Maximum Fun. Nighty night, sleepyheads. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and Frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week, for my brother, my brother, and me. Okay. So trauma treatment. There's a million of them. This is when someone says they can treat or heal your your long gone trauma. And here I'm talking mostly about everyday trauma, right? Not military trauma, not rape trauma, um, not those kinds of things. But I've kind of combined here a list of science-based therapies and non-science-based therapies. And the reality is that all the science ones, how do I, how do I explain this? All the science ones are for genuine PTSD. So first we need to figure out that you really did actually experience trauma with a capital T where you were scared. You thought you might die. You know, you, maybe you were on the ground at 9-11. Like those are traumas. And we do have science-based treatments for those. So cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive processing therapy, cognitive therapy. I know these sound the same, but they are different. And prolonged exposure therapy, which is the most effective. Prolonged exposure means you engage with the very thing that scares you. And this is also what we do for people with panic attacks and phobias. You make yourself stand in the room with a snake 
I just did this a couple weeks ago because I'm afraid of snakes. You make yourself stand in the room with the snake for 25 minutes until your fear juice runs out. And and eventually you retie those neural networks that are convincing you that that snakes are terrifying. You learn, no, they're not. With real capital T trauma, people are often just lost in thought, thinking about the past experience and trying to file it away. And what did it mean? And what should it mean to my greater life? And sometimes they find themselves in cognitive avoidance because it's so painful. And here with prolonged exposure therapy, the idea is, no, let's engage directly. You know, you've been avoiding thinking about it and you know that you're avoiding thinking about it. That's important. And so let's just let you think about it. Let's spend an hour like actually thinking about it and talking about it and asking what does it mean to you? And are you a worse person? So maybe your trauma was like you killed someone. That's actually one of the worst traumas we know of. It has some of the worst outcomes or what we call moral injury, where you have done something wrong. That's one of the most painful human experiences. Okay, you did something awful. How does that feel? Are you a worse person than you thought? Could you handle being 75% as good as you thought you were? Could it mean that all humans are 75% as good as they think they are? and would know that if they went to war. What does that mean? So sitting there with the thing that scares you. There are some things that have moderate support. EMDR comes up a lot in this, in this field. And EMDR is really interesting because it is sort of on the cusp. In, in this therapy, the therapist moves their finger uh, in front of your face as you're recalling your memory and you follow it. And this activates what's called your visuospatial sketchpad. It's the part of your brain that shows you images when you're daydreaming or remembering. And it kind of scrambles that ability to form the coherent picture. And it, it kind of gives you, it allows you to be sort of the author of the memory, even as you're reliving it. So you can adjust it. You can make it have a different emotional valence. You can move someone into the memory who wasn't there, who would have been comforting if they had been there. Some people even move in like Jesus or Buddha into their memory. But obviously, this is intentionally forming false memories, which is fine. False memory, again, normal feature of human cognition. It's okay. That's fine. But then we can't be thinking of those memories as fact. And especially if we're going to go accusing people, right? And some of these trauma therapists use EMDR for the express purpose of recovering memories. And then anything that that person sees during this process, it's rebranded as the truth. So that's uh, a dicey one. Even though the science is there, it can be misused really easily. So here's also a list of some with insufficient support, but this could have been hundreds of pages long. There are so many of these, uh, these trauma therapies. But, and this is so important. This is so important. You need differential diagnosis before you do any of this. So in medicine, differential diagnosis is centrally built into the system. When you go and see your GP, one of the primary things they're supposed to do is get their own brain out of the way and hear, and get yours too out of the way and really get down to what symptoms are you experiencing and what are a few of the most likely explanations for the things you're experiencing, because there's probably many. And then now let's together scientifically and one at a time, try each 
explanation and each solution that's attached to that explanation. So in medicine, we call this differential diagnosis. It should exist in psychology as well. And with good therapists, it does. But it is grandly missing in the trauma-informed community. If you go to a trauma therapist as just sort of an experiment, you are very likely to hear, yes, I would call what you're describing trauma. I know because I did this. I went to three trauma therapists and I told all of them that I have migraines. I find attention kind of difficult because I'm just always thinking a million thoughts and it's hard for me to like clue in on what another person is saying to me because I'm just always have a lot of networks going. And, uh, oh, and I have something, I have this, this bladder pain that comes and goes uh, called interstitial cystitis. That's fairly common in women. And that's it. That's what I told people. Oh, and, and sorry, one more thing. And that as a child, I didn't like my dad. And I don't really understand that. I don't remember him doing anything particularly awful. So therapist number one told me that I grew up in a witchcraft cult. Therapist number two told me I grew up in a mind control operation similar to MKUltra. And therapist three told me that I was sexually abused by my father. And therapist three was the most mainstream person, like just someone I found on the internet. The other two are at least, like, seem to have pet causes around things like mind control. But they all got the same data and came to extremely different conclusions. But none of them said, huh, so you haven't described trauma. What made you come here today? Not one. Nobody. Nobody. And there are great explanations for my symptoms that have nothing <laughs> to do with trauma. And I, I, I believe those. Um, and just to throw this out there, in case anyone has heard this interstitial cystitis lie, that it is an indicator of forgotten child sex abuse. It is not. It, it is connected to having things like IBS and just it's, it's a chronic pain syndrome and it is connected to depression and anxiety. Okay, so how do you respond to this? If you see it on social media, I, I would encourage you to be selective about this. I think that in the current milieu, we talk a lot about never being silent, always speaking up. That comes from a great place. It can also become an emotional burden where you are anxiously moving around the world, worried that you won't be responding in a perfect way, that you will you will somehow let something awful go by and it was your job to stop it. And I get where this comes from, but we are in such a connected world now that this can become your whole job. And you will spread yourself thin and you will find yourself not doing a very good job at it. You'll find that you are just talking in bumper stickers. You're telling people, this is pseudoscience, leaving the room because you're tired (laughs) because you've had to do this so much because there's so much of it. So just be selective. It's okay. Be silent sometimes. It's fine. I'm telling you, it's fine. You can be exacting about when and how you want to engage with this. And if you decide you don't want to engage with this, that's okay too. Not everything is your personal job. But let's say that you want to. Be polite. Assume they are sincere. I think almost everybody in this world, with a few exceptions, like specific names coming to mind, 
are sincere. They believe what they're saying because this is just a way to view everything. This is a version of the world that makes sense to some people. Don't assume they're just trying to sell their program and that's it. Be thorough, articulate your concern really clearly. It can be a mask to just say, this is pseudoscience. I remember a lady uh, at Skeptics in the Pub told me so. I don't remember the details. That's not thorough. (laughs) So we engage. When they say something, you can say, huh, okay, do you have a source for that? And then go and actually read it. Read the source. Figure out what your actual complaint is and engage directly with that. And sometimes you'll not be sure. You'll be like, ooh, smells wrong. This smells like pseudoscience, but I don't get it yet. That's fine. It's fine. (laughs) It's not incumbent on you to have like a Rolodex of information in your head. But wait until the moment where you have the time to actually engage on that kind of level and ask for sources. That's always just the easiest thing because it doesn't necessarily come off hostile if you just say, oh, interesting. Can you give me a source for that part about body pain and trauma? And then you can look at it. You can see, oh, are are they just linking to a page that was written by, you know, Betty's chronic pain page? Or is it a PhD? Okay, it's a PhD. Great. What can I find online already about this study? What concerns me about it? Is the sample size really small? When I read this, what doesn't add up for me? And if you haven't read scientific studies very often, you might right now be like, oh, God. But it actually becomes quite easy. It it becomes familiar. And it's sort of like learning a language. You know, the the style sort of becomes second nature to you. And it becomes easier to do. So let yourself go through this process. Be a scientist. You might be wondering why Bessel van der Kolk came up like a thousand times in this talk. And that's because he is a major figure in the book I'm writing. I can't say too much. Here's what I'll say. You may have never heard of me. And you may have no particular reason to trust me. And that's fine. But if I have earned any of your your trust with this talk or with my prior work, I'll tell you, I would not rely on any source from Bessel van der Kolk. Not one. I don't think he is a reliable purveyor of information. I will tell you more in my book. Are you a big time publisher? You should email me. Okay, a few almost closing thoughts. It's not harmless to assume you had trauma. This is sort of an underlying piece of it, right? Uh, That people, they don't actually say, well, why don't you go to a trauma therapist? What's the harm? I I don't, they don't actually use that iteration, but that feels like an underlying thread because people will just say, yeah, you should see my trauma therapist. She's great. Without any, any analysis of whether that person sitting in front of you is actually the right candidate for that kind of treatment. And I think this everyday trauma concept is just a new term for human suffering. We've been tied around human suffering as long as humans have been alive. That's not new. And we all do suffer. We all will suffer. All of that is, is real. And, and these people who get caught in the trauma trap are experiencing real suffering. And a misaligned treatment can make that worse. And people who claim to end human suffering, they're making faith claims, right? Buddha. (laughs) Buddha claims to cure human suffering, right? It is a huge claim to widen the definition of trauma to the point that anybody can claim anything as trauma 
and then say, you, you can treat and cure it. You have made yourself a guru. I, I find that gross. <laughs> um, I find it disturbing. And I, I think we've got to stop treating it as, as harmless. Also, if you have experienced a type one traumatic event, that's, that means one where you almost died or you witnessed someone die or uh, you were put into a state of total panic about your own survival or the survival of someone you love. If you've experienced something like that, first, let me say, you are very likely to recover on your own. Very likely. Over 80% of people don't have any symptoms of PTSD within a month after the traumatic event. So most people don't even need therapy for real capital T trauma. But if you think that you have PTSD from a specific terrifying event that you have always remembered, and you're experiencing intrusive thoughts and panic and startle response, and you can, you've always mentally connected it to that event for the most part, exposure is still the best therapy. But if you find that too overwhelming, there's also CBT. And if you can find an EMDR therapist who has a science-based mindset, wonderful. I, I find, I, I don't have a good keyword to give you so you can make sure like, they should, they should be saying X, Y, Z so you know they're the real deal. I don't have something like that to offer you, which is why I don't tell people to go get EMDR. But theoretically, you could get good science-based EMDR for it. And let's say you listened to this talk and you are feeling lost now because this idea of everyday trauma really spoke to you. And now you feel like it's sort of taken away from you. You might just be suffering. You might be currently suffering. And you can talk to a mental health professional who is willing to engage you about differential diagnosis. And that is a term you can bring up. If your therapist has never heard of it, that's probably a red flag. But if they, even more of a red flag is if they don't want to do it. If they're like, well, what's the point of that? Like, you're obviously you have trauma. You're here. That's why you found me. Really bad. Really bad. This expert on the screen here is Margaret Bloom. She is a differential diagnosis expert. And she gave this wonderful seminar um, that I watched online. And she says, diagnosis serves one basic purpose, to discover and organize information into a diagnostic schema, schema is like idea set, that may lead to more effective methods of helping the client. As a part of counseling, diagnosis is an ongoing process that generates working hypotheses for problem identification and treatment. It's never a static event. It is essential that diagnosis be understood and taught as a process and as an integral part of effective counseling. This is, from what I've seen, almost entirely missing from the trauma-informed world. And in fact, some of these people want to rebrand things as trauma that are really dangerous to rebrand as trauma. The most common, of course, being depression. But I have also seen psychosis rebranded as trauma, borderline personality disorder. That's a really common one. People who got a, a good science-based diagnosis from another clinician, and then they go and see a trauma therapist who says, oh, that person just didn't get it because they don't know about trauma. What you really have is trauma. And people go off their meds and they get worse. It is a potentially very dangerous pathway. 
I just took a course at Harvard about psychological resilience. And as much as positive psychology can be reduced to bumper sticker phrases and even sometimes patronizing sentiments, the truth is that the science says that you, person listening to this, really are more resilient than you know. And by that, I mean, when we actually look at people and ask them to rate their resilience, they don't know what they're capable of. People misidentify what they're capable of. You are very likely more able to recover than you have any idea about. And this is great news. And it is partly because of society getting better. Society still has many (laughs) roads to clear, of course, but it is because of our connections to one another and our ability to do science together and to develop good treatment strategies that can be short and effective so that you can get on with your life. That's part of it. And we deny people that ability to get better when we, when we permanently stick them in their past and we rebrand their questionable experiences as totally evil and bad. Oh, I thought I had one more slide, but that's it. Okay, so I hope that I have persuaded you that uh, differential diagnosis is a critical part of the therapeutic relationship, that it's totally missing from the trauma-informed community, and that if you, if you are suffering, there are many paths to go down that don't involve trauma and many solutions. And, and I hope to tell you more in my book. Hi, Marsh. Thank you so much, Carrie. That was absolutely fantastic. I know that the uh, chat was really appreciating that. We've got lots and lots of uh, great questions too. So thank you so much. That was that was brilliant. Um, this is the chat kind of going crazy. The, the the clapping is all happening and all that kind of stuff. I'm I'm positive. Okay, good. Um, I can't see it, but I believe you. Just just have absolute faith in the the presence of claps and no doubt the presence of people pointing out that you've been joined by a dog, which I'm sure will be absolutely filling uh, filling the chat. Who are we joined with here? This is Ella, Ella Poppy. She she is 16 years old and wow. pretty permanently confused. <laughs> she carries it well. She does not look confused at all. She looks absolutely <laughs> confident. So she can help you in answering this first question from Eagle, okay. who asks, uh, do you think the term trauma is now too tainted by this point? Should we stay away from it to avoid all the baggage? Or do you think there's value in reclaiming it? Um, yeah, a, a great question. Uh, I mean, the real answer is it's as strong as its actual definition. We have to define our terms in science every time we use them. And I think that it is best applied to those type one trauma experiences. So I'm okay with it sticking around for PTSD, for those high panic experiences where you think you might die or someone you love might die. I think that losing it there would probably be problematic just for the 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 architecture of the way that psychological studies are uh, are made. So usually when you make a study, you're referring to a lot of past studies and hopefully using the same definitions. So mm. we would lose some clarity if we took it out of the out of there. But for the popular definition of trauma, yes. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. I I think we should probably stop using it just for every kind of negative human experience. Yeah. 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 
Um, and on that as well, Anamika uh, asks, um, where do you think the motive to get to the root of a traumatic experience came from? Is it all from things like the satanic panic, Freud? I know you touched on it, but where do you think the kind of the motivation to treat it as the, the root and to tackle it in that kind of way comes from? I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty basic to the human experience. I think we started doing this well, but before we knew about things like like genes and nutrition and all these all these unseen actors that engage with our bodies and brains. So, you know, in the 1800s, when people were trying to figure out the way, the reasons they are the way they are, what would you point to besides human experience? And so that's how we've always told stories is, you know, even Oedipus, you know, is, is a story about someone like repeatedly making the same fuck ups, right? <laughs> um, uh, and, and there are two ways to see that. One is you seem to have a habit, Oedipus, um, and maybe that habit says something about who you are and how your the makeup of your brain is. And maybe you should do some reflection on whether you want to behave better later. But the old story is, no, that first trauma created some mental pathway that made you create for yourself the second trauma and the third trauma and the fourth trauma. And I just think that was the easiest explanation before we knew all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So Oedipus had the the habit of killing his father, which I guess is a, is as habits go, it's quite easy to break after the first time. <laughs> you uh, you you said you talked about in uh, in your talk um, how to respond if you see this kind of stuff on social media. But we've got an anonymous question asking how do you support loved ones who are seeming to find quote unquote healing through a pseudoscientific approach to trauma. So not just when you see it floating around on social media, but actual people in your life who are engaging in this kind of way and, and seem to be benefiting from it in whatever whatever mm. we mean by seems to. Yeah, it's really tough. So um, the, I, I'm not sure that I have a totally satisfying answer, but here's what's coming to mind for me. Because of the work I've done with a lot of people who have left cults, I've given this answer a lot to people who have a loved one who's getting caught up in a, a cult or a guru or someone who just sort of seems to be rejiggering their way of seeing the world. And that moment is so panic inducing for the loved one that they really don't know what to do. And that's about when I get the email. Um, and so what I usually say is, this is going to be the really hard part for you, because you are going to watch them go through a honeymoon period with this new idea and you're going to kind of have to let them and and it might hopefully it's short but it might be a long time evan asked when you took all those all your issues to those various different therapists and they suggested those different causes for the the abuse that had happened in your life how did you respond and how might the average person respond to those various different suggestions uh, the second part of your question, are you looking for advice or are you just asking what normally happens? Uh, let's say, how, what, what do you think somebody who was given those would uh, would respond to them? So if, how did you respond and, and what's the average person going to take from that kind of suggestion anyway? I knew that I was writing a book. Um, so I was, I was trying to be present in both versions of myself as the journalist and as the client, which is, you know, not always possible. You are constantly and your journalist had at least someone so I knew this is copy like I'm going to be able to tell people what happened here and so that kept me calm and I just kind of kept them talking and said oh that's really interesting is that does that happen a lot have you heard that before with other people and just tried to get more information but what usually happens 
I mean, I don't, I don't know that I can honestly and scientifically say I know what usually happens, but I can say all of those people have robust followings mm. and robust client lists and are uh, in two out of the three, they're still licensed and you just wouldn't even know, you know, you would, you would sign up for their therapy just thinking you were getting trauma therapy and have no idea they had these, these little pet ideas. Yeah. I must admit, I can entirely sympathize with that uh, that dual uh, part of your brain of, uh, oh, my God, this is awful. And, oh, my God, this is great content. And having to sort of uh, manage those two things at once. I've been in similar situations uh, myself. Um, we have two questions that I think fit relatively well together in terms of how to weed out uh, potential issues like the one that, the ones that you're talking about and how to avoid those kind of therapists. So there's an anonymous question which asked, as someone who's trying to get back into therapy, what are some good screening questions for potential therapists to avoid this kind of stuff? Uh, and then relatedly, Sardar asked, uh, are there any guidelines or suggestions for parents on how to empower their teenagers to identify and reject pseudoscientific trauma-related misinformation? So how do we how do we help the average person spot this and steer clear? Huh, okay. Um, uh, so as far as finding a new therapist, I'm... I am pleased to say that my my friend Cynthia Myersberg, who uh, teaches pseudoscience and mental health at Harvard, she has a good answer to this question. Thank God, because I didn't. Um, but uh, uh, the American Association of Psychological Science now has a a search function for for clinicians. If a clinician belongs to a group like AAPS, they're at least paying attention. They're at least caring about the science and seeing their enterprise in scientific terms. And that would be really reassuring to me. However, it is American. I don't know how far the reach of the, the search is. It's possible it's outside the U.S., but I would be kind of surprised. So mm -hmm. I don't know where your anonymous commenter is from, but that's that's the best response I've got. Uh, and then what was your second question? Um, how can uh, what tips can we have for parents to pass on to their kids to help them steer clear of this kind of trauma related misinformation on social media? Yeah, I mean, you know, you you know how how little or much detail to go into with your kid. But I guess the the most important thing I'd want to say to a parent is teach cognitive flexibility, teach your kids to see their lives in many ways. So it is not necessary to reinforce the way someone sees their own experience. You don't always have to do that. It is okay to say, oh, I don't, I don't really see it that way. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. That was so painful. Is this another way to see it? And even if you get blowback, teaching them to have that, those kinds of cognitive reappraisal strategies is really going to pay dividends in their lives. And it's, it's one of the most predictive things of whether people get out of depression is whether they are able to cognitively reassess their own experiences. Yeah. Um, we, we've got a question here from Paul uh, Picticule. Uh, he asks, are there any cases where a therapist's erroneous identification of trauma in a subject has nevertheless actually worked out to be beneficial to, to them? So, you know, the cause is wrong, but the, the action to fix it has actually been helpful. Um, yes, in the short term. So basically sitting down and talking to anybody for a long time seems to have something, <laughs> seems to do something for us, right? depending on the modality your therapist is using, they may or may not be better than sitting down with a good friend. But some mm. people don't have that kind of friend who's ready for that kind of depth. And so you get this really structured, wonderful friend who shows up with you on time and listens to you. 
And if the mental framework they happen to use is trauma, that can just be so uh, validating and reassuring that in the short term, it can be really great. And that's usually part of people's stories. Even when I, even when I hear the bad story, it starts out with that. Mm. So I would suspect that there are, and I would suspect that there are plenty of people who go and get that and, and go out relatively unscathed. But, you know, I think the risks are too great for those uh, assumed benefits. Yeah, yeah. And then sort of the flip side of that question in some ways, you know, that question being about um, the the fake responses to uh, to, to trauma. Um, Anonymous asks, um, your comment about your carbon monoxide experience, um, is there any cases where a perceived horror or a, or a fake horror has caused real trauma, like a genuine trauma? Ah, uh, that's a great question. Okay. It would not match the capital T trauma definition because the actual thing that happens when you're when you think your life is in danger or someone you love's life is in danger the actual physical thing that happens seems to be somewhat different from our other experiences of horror horror shock mm. so in that way no but i'm being awfully picky about my definitions there but but in, an interesting thing that uh, your commenter might want to look up is that even people with false memories of things like alien abduction um, when they recall their memories in an MRI, their brains look exactly the same as people who are recalling actual traumatic experiences they they experienced. And we would assume those are false memories, but they're, you know, completely real to the person experiencing them. Mm -hmm. Um, we have a question from Rose, uh, which I think a lot of people will be uh, interested in. Uh, do you have a reference list that they could have? They'd love to follow up on some of the things that you said. You've gone into so much detail. Yeah. Uh, where can they go in the short term, at least, for more information on this? We know the answer in the long term, which you're, you're very welcome to plug too. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I, I, I wish that I had gotten more of my sources on my slide. That is my biggest criticism to myself is that I that I wasn't able to. So I was wondering, Marsh, can I give you some extra slides that we tack on to the end of this and make sure it's on your YouTube video when it goes out? Yeah, I think that should be fine. I'll say yes, given that I'm the person who does not do that. So uh, the person who will do the edit is uh, probably sat in uh, our back channel chat uh, cursing you. But yeah, absolutely. Send us that slide. We'll make sure it's at the end. And then anybody who's watching this now or is watching it on YouTube, uh, stay tuned and you'll see a list of the references uh, at some point either at the end of the talk or the end of the Q&A. So yeah, that's a really great idea. If you want just like one title recommendation while you're twiddling your thumbs waiting for my book, Bananos, The End of Trauma, I think is so far the best at analyzing uh, how people actually recover from from real trauma, if that interests good commenter. Great. And we've also, we can add it to our website as well. The website listing for this event, we can uh, we can add it there. I'm uh, I'm told in the chat uh, here as, uh, as we're going. So that should all be okay, absolutely great. fine. Um, we're going to finish in just a couple of minutes. So um, we, there's a couple about uh, your your other project where a lot of people know you from. So uh, Anonymous asks, what is your absolute favorite investigation that you and Ross have uh, have been on? Um, oh, gosh, I used to have an immediate answer to this, and it was the Mormons. But now that's 10 years old, oh, <laughs> 12 years old, it's old. And so it just doesn't feel right. I... Gosh, what is my favorite now? I mean, I really love every time Ross and I go to Conscious Life Expo, which is this uh, this event here in LA where they just have like every psychic and channeler. And uh, this year I went to see a guy who claims to have met immortal people and he was bringing back their messages. And 
That all I love, especially from a psychology standpoint, because I think you can learn a lot about uh, psychosis, frankly. I think you can learn a lot about how dangerously, precipitously close we all are to psychosis. It's like a common yeah. human experience that we don't talk about very much. And and I don't know, I find that that angle really fascinating. So yeah, it might be Conscious Life Expo. Yeah, I, I shouldn't say that I wish we had something of that size in the UK, because it doesn't feel like the kind of thing we should be wishing into existence. But I'm so jealous that you got to get to go to us. Whenever I go to like a mind, body, spirit festival or a flat earth conference or something like that, it's it's the most valuable experience to be around people who, who, who genuinely believe in these things and try to understand, you know, what was your route into this and kind of what happened in your life to get you to this place. It's, you, you learn so much about the human experience, I think. Absolutely. Yep. Totally agree. Um, we have a related question from uh, 66Steve IRL who uh, asks, uh, through all of your Ono, Ross and Carry investigations, uh, who scared you the most and why? Oh, um, okay. The only time that's coming to mind is Tony Alamo Christian Ministries, which is this, this group that had been busted by the FBI for um, for being really physically abusive. There was a story about someone chasing someone else with a two by four with nails in it. So I just heard all these like nuts stories. And in order to go up to their compound to go to their service, we had to get in their unmarked van and drive deep into the desert. And it, it didn't I think it didn't even have a license plate. I think that's right. And I, I remember getting in that van and looking at Ross like, are we going to do this? And he nodded and I <laughs> nodded. And so I was nervous, but I don't know. Uh, the Nothing happened. So the fear would have led me astray if I hadn't gone. Uh, that's fair. Um, well, I think we'll actually we'll have that as our last uh, question. I think we we could have been asking you questions uh, all all night for another another few hours, but we won't uh, we won't do that. If you've really enjoyed this evening and you want to, as I say, throw a couple of pounds in the pot to keep us going, you can go to sitp.online forward slash donate. That is the end of this evening. Please give a huge thank you to Carrie Poppy for joining us. Uh, thank you to all of you who've been watching, and we'll see you next time. Yay! Thank you so much, Carrie. Uh, Again, that was eye-opening for me. I learned a lot. Thank you so much to Marsh for hosting this talk, for convincing Carrie over the years to give it and to spill some of the beans on her book. Of course, we're all waiting for that. So again, if you wanted to see those slides and the sources that Carrie added at the end, you can go to tinyurl.com slash talk all one word, and the skeptics in the pub online were true to their word. You can also find a link on the YouTube version of this talk. All right, well, that's it for this episode. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. You can support this show by going to MaximumFun.org slash join. But just so you know, Maximum Fun Drive is coming up really soon. So hold on for that. And if you can support us during that drive, there will be all kinds of awesome incentives and cool bonus content but in the meantime leave us a positive review tell a friend spread the word maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned audience supported